Welcome back. And a very special welcome to our next guest. His name is Ruben Johnson. We hosted him on our Securing America TV program last month and thought it's an opportune moment to have him join us once again with an update on what is happening in the country in which he resides, Ukraine, and whether, as is being widely forecast, tomorrow, maybe D-Day for Russian forces set to invade Ukraine. He is a Ukraine-based defense technology analyst and political affairs correspondent. He has written, among other places, in Breaking Defense and the Washington Free Beacon. And we're always delighted to have a chance to pick his brains. Ruben, thank you so much for joining us and welcome back. Thank you for having me, Frank. Very kind of you to give some time to this important story. That's a hugely important story, and we're going to talk a bit about why in a moment. But before we do, I thought maybe we could just sort of level set on what, from your perspective, is happening at the moment and what the prospects are that the morrow may bring uh, a Russian invasion, another Russian invasion of Ukraine, or if not tomorrow, um, perhaps in the not too distant future. Well, um, there's been uh, quite a bit of there's been official warnings coming from from Washington, from London, and from elsewhere that there would be a uh, the Russian invasion would kick off tomorrow. Um, this has sparked a lot of activity. Embassies being evacuated. The U.S. embassy in Kiev is actually officially closed at this point, um, and the Ukrainians have sort of come back and said, okay, well, tomorrow's the invasion. The Ukrainian president called that tomorrow will be a national holiday, a day of national unity, so that everyone is prepared to fight and resist. <clears throat> so we don't know if the invasion is kicking off or not tomorrow. The things that have happened that we know is that the Russians declared that they had finished their quote-unquote exercises with these all these troops, probably the largest exercises in the history of post-Soviet Russia, uh, and that they were going to pull some of them back from the border. But as of uh, the last hour or so, I believe I'm correct, and NATO is saying there's still no evidence of any withdrawal. Now, secondly, there was a meeting and then a joint press conference earlier today between Russian President Vladimir Putin and the new German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. And uh, Putin never misses a chance to distort historical facts in, in, in a way which are just uh, quite incredible. But uh, uh, Putin went on, as he goes on quite often in this press conference, about how Ukraine should never be allowed to join NATO. You know, this should never happen. This would be the worst thing in the world, et cetera. And the German chancellor said, well, you know, Ukraine's never applied for NATO membership. You know, we're a long way from talking about anything like that. And it was almost a comical moment when he said, he said, if Ukraine ever did join NATO, I'm, I'm pretty sure it would be after both of us have left office. And then he sort of looked at Putin because we, we all assume Putin's going to be president for life. Um, so they went back and forth. And Putin at one point accused NATO of being an aggressive power because it conducted airstrikes in, on Yugoslavia and former Yugoslavia in the 90s. And the German chancellor said, well, this was to prevent genocide because of what was going on in the former Yugoslavia between the uh, Serbs and the 
about these the, the uh, Muslims that were being ma- massacred in different parts of the former Yugoslavia. And Putin shot back and said, yes, but there's been genocide in the Donbass. It's funny because no one's ever reported anything like that. Um, and then the last thing, which has just happened in the last couple of hours or so, is that uh, two of the largest Ukrainian banks and the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense and the Armed Forces and some other major entities have all been hit by cyber attacks and have had their websites brought down. Now, these are not attacks in the case of the MODs. Reportedly, these are not attacks that would affect the chain of command, but they are denial of service attacks. And it's the second time the, the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense and the Armed Forces uh, websites and the websites of the two largest Ukrainian banks and some other Ukrainian agencies and institutions were hit with cyber attacks. And this is now the second time that there's been a wave of cyber attacks by the Russians on these Ukrainian state websites, the, the MOD, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and some others were hit a few weeks ago. And, and there were all sorts of threatening messages uh, pasted all over the web pages about the worst is coming. You should be afraid. So it's, it's all consistent. And there's no question that they were Russian-sourced attacks? Well, you know, the lawyers will say you can't say that. Um, because, but you know, if, if we want to, if we want to use evidence that would, that would uh, stand up in court, I don't think we'd ever accuse anybody of anything. It's like the North Korean cyber attacks. And then when you trace, then they're always traced back to servers in China, but they're servers in China that they're hijacking. So, uh, it's, it, it would be, Simply, it it defies any sort of common sense to believe that it's anyone other than the Russians, given everything that's happening at the moment. So when you look at the attacks um, so far, if if they're denial of service on websites, that's um, perhaps a nuisance rather than something that degrades the Ukrainian defense capabilities. Is is that your current assessment of it, and that uh, worse could in fact be... Uh, in the offing, but hasn't uh, demonstrated yet the full capacity of the Russians to engage in cyber warfare. No, it's it, it's it's not their full capacity, and these could be these could be trial runs. And then the other thing you have to remember is that the the Russians and the Chinese both the Russians invented the science in some ways, but they both uh, practice in their information warfare operations. They practice. Um, a concept which we call reflexive control. And it's all about taking certain actions that will cause your adversary to, to unknowingly make wrong decisions. And, and by, by taking certain actions and watch how the other, watching how the other side reacts, you, you develop over a period of time a set of, of stimulus that you can use that you know will cause your adversary to make these wrong decisions. So you never know what part of the game they're playing. Are they are they doing setups or something later? Is this psychological warfare? Is it harassment? Uh, what is it? So that's a, a good overview of the situation. Um, I guess it's fair to say that uh, it's not clear whether the warnings of an imminent attack are correct or whether it may be, as I tend to think, um, something that is a distinct possibility but uh, probably wouldn't be triggered until after the genocide games are over in Beijing. Uh, do you have a thought about that and uh, and are you making book on it? Um, well, 
my, my thought about the attacks is simply this. Of course, there's no there's no guarantee until these units are withdrawn from the border and and they are and the units which have been deployed from very, very far uh, distant base you know, staging areas, like the units that have been brought all the way from the Russian parties until they return to base. Um, I saw General Breedlove interviewed the, the other night, and he made a very good point. He said, if you checked... Is he European ago, command? He was, yeah, General Philip Breedlove, who was the former NATO commander, the former SACUR, um, who I've had the chance to spend some time with in, in some war games in which we, we gained out a, a Russian attack on Poland and the Baltics. But he made the point that if you looked a couple of weeks ago or so, all these Russian vehicles were parked in, you know, basically out in, in, in very big staging areas, uh, purposely set so that satellites would see them. And that's, that's part of the psychological game. You, you let your opponent take satellite photos so you can see how many units there are ready to, to move. But now they've been deployed up close to the border, you know, poised for, to roll across the border, ready for attack. So that's worrying. Until they're moved away from those, you know, ready to launch positions, uh, we're we're not in a safe spot. Well, and safe is uh, probably not what you are in, uh, even if they're uh, at further remove, given uh, the nature of this regime in in uh, the Kremlin. Which brings me to the larger point that I wanted to get into with you, Ruben, um, a man who I generally find does a remarkable job of addressing the public policy issues of our day. Tucker Carlson of Fox News fame has thrown himself in, uh, I think it's fair to say, with those who believe that um, Ukraine is none of our business, that it has uh, no strategic importance, that we have no uh, responsibility, certainly, for its security in the face of the threats that the Russians are mounting, and that, uh, if anything, uh, it's more or less the same as Russia, an authoritarian regime uh, that really isn't deserving of the title of a democracy. Um, he said words to this effect now uh, quite frequently over the past couple of weeks, and uh, seems to be kind of of the general mindset that uh, what the Biden administration is saying and doing about this is uh, uh, sort of in the wag the dog uh, sort of mode of uh, uh, an effort to detract attention from what is clearly going wrong for this administration here in the United States. How, as a, an American living in Kiev and uh, deeply knowledgeable about national security issues and uh, our strategic equities do you respond? You know, I'm so glad you asked me this. Um, I, I mean, I like Tucker Carlson a lot. I'm a big Fox fan, but on, on this issue, uh, he probably deserves the, you know, the Joe Biden award for being completely wrong on a foreign policy issue. As, as, as Bob Gates has always described Biden's uh, inability to get the, 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 the decision right. Okay. <clears throat> First of all, um, one of the big arguments we hear about Ukraine and the reason why we shouldn't be spending any time on it is that, oh, China is the big threat to America. We're worried about China. Let's take care of China. Okay, I'll buy that. However, everyone seems to forget that three years ago, the Chinese were trying every single trick in the book that they could to purchase a very large 
aerospace jet engine design and production facility in Zaporozhye, Ukraine, a company called Motorsich. And there was a study parade of people coming into Kiev uh, from Washington, including at the time John Bolton, who was the national security advisor, employing everyone from the Ukrainian president on down, president on down, don't sell this company to China. Why not? Well, because the Chinese are jumping every day by leaps and bounds, you know, from one level to another in the sophistication of their defense sector. They're building stealthy fighter aircraft, which they couldn't do before. They're building all kinds of things they couldn't do before. But the one thing they can't do are jet engines. They've had to buy jet engines from Russia. That's slowing them down. If they get this Ukrainian company, that will plug one of the remaining gaps in their defense industrial base. We don't want that to happen. It's so important. I mean, we were told over and over how important that was. Suddenly, with the threat of Russia invading Ukraine, who would gladly hand this company over to the Chinese, suddenly it's not important anymore. I find that quite fascinating. But the problems don't end there. The Russians conveniently forget about and never mention the fact that in 1994, Ukraine turned over what was at the time the world's third largest arsenal of nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons left on the ground in Ukraine after the breakup of the Soviet Union. They were returned to Russia. And in along with the Kazakhs, Kazakhstan and Belarus, they all, all three countries did the same. And, in, and what was signed in 1994, the year that this happened, was the Budapest Memorandum in which Russia stated, full stop, that in return for receiving their nuclear weapons back that, that they were taking over from their, the days of the Soviet Union, in return for that, they would recognize the borders of Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan in perpetuity, period. No interpretation, no nuances, no nothing. In perpetuity. And the United States and Great Britain, uh, France, and China also signed on and said that they would guarantee the security of these three nations who were giving up their nuclear weapons. Well, we now see that Belarus has been occupied, and we see that Kazakhstan still has a lot of heavy Russian control internally, and now the Russians just want to take over and invade all of Ukraine. If Ukraine is invaded and taken by the Russians without anyone firing a shot, you can't forget about nuclear proliferation for the rest of mankind's history. The North Koreans will never give up their nuclear weapons. If, if this is allowed to happen. The Iranians will never stop trying to build a nuclear bomb. The Pakistanis and the Indians will never stop building more bombs so they can destroy each other. And countries that don't have nuclear weapons now, who see how terrible the United States is at holding up its security guarantees, I'm talking about Japan, I'm talking about South Korea, I'm talking about Australia, possibly Taiwan, possibly Poland, all of these countries will try to acquire their own nuclear arsenals. So from the nuclear non-proliferation position alone, allowing Russia to roll over Ukraine will be a disaster we'll have to live with for forever. I agree. And I think it's both very important to make this point and, uh, and you've made it very powerfully. To the extent that we have this taking place, in particular against the backdrop of what Tucker Carlson and I, and I'm sure you agree, was an unmitigated disaster in Afghanistan. The need to honor our commitments made by a Democratic president, no less, 
back in 1994 is of just, it seems to me, even greater importance than it would have been just a few months ago. And to the extent that Ukraine does wind up succumbing to the Russians, uh, I, I fear that especially having done so little to prevent it, uh, we will be permanently regarded as an absolutely unreliable ally. And uh, the argument for making a separate peace, not just with the Russians, but with the Chinese and others, um, something that I'm sure is weighing on lots of countries around the world now, will become that much more uh, compelling, I would think. Your thoughts, Ruben Johnson? Henry Kissinger used to say that, um, and, and he was, I think, only half joking, but he used to say that it was more dangerous to be America's friend than America's enemy. Um, and th this could this could put that, uh, just allowing Ukraine to go under without taking any real action of any kind in a kinetic sense, um, that, that could cement that that concept uh, for good, yes. That's we just, that's the concern. And and and, and, I, and I'll just say this: uh, I've got people. This is not just me. I have people from all over Eastern Europe, you know, Poland, other places. People, some people who were quite happy when they saw Joe Biden elected because they bought into this whole concept that Trump was, you know, such a horrible, horrible orange man or whatever. Um, but even these people are now screaming and saying, "What was going on in Joe Biden's head?" When at the very beginning of this crisis, he said, oh, there's no way we'd send American combat troops. To, he just took them off the table. Which is repeated. So there is this thing. It's called strategic ambiguity. That's what we do with Taiwan. That was absolutely boneheaded. And the second boneheaded statement was this, this, this idiotic outburst that he made in one of his press conferences about, oh, well, if it's only a minor incursion, that's okay. Those two statements could easily lead to the deaths of tens of thousands of people, and I am not exaggerating. Boneheaded is one way of explaining it. Uh, another is quite possibly, as we certainly believe is the case with China, that um, the money that was provided his son by a widow, or excuse me, the, the wife of the mayor of Moscow, millions of dollars um, may have been an influential factor as well. To say nothing of the Burisma and other you know, complications that uh, the Biden team has. But let, let, me, let me just ask you very quickly, Ruben, in, in just a minute, if you would, speak to the proposition advanced by Tucker Carlson, among others, that uh, Ukraine is actually not a democracy. It is an authoritarian system, again, unworthy of the description of a democracy, let alone the benefits of being treated as one by us. Okay. There's a very simple answer to this, and I have to, I have to make the statement all the time. If we are going to use these standards that we're now applying to Ukraine, if we're going to apply them across the board, there's only three countries in the world that we're going to deal with and say that are deserving of our support. And those three countries are the U.S., Canada, and sometimes, I'm sorry, the U.K., the United Kingdom, Canada, and sometimes Germany. Because, okay, fine, if we want to apply those standards, we'll, we're going to apply them to everybody. So you're going to tell me that Pakistan's not corrupt. You're going to tell me Indonesia's not corrupt. You're going to tell me all these countries in Central America we've been pouring money into for more than 40 years to fight the drug cartel. They're not corrupt. Nobody's corrupt but Ukraine. Everybody well, else is just it's, as clean it's as It's beyond the snow. corruption. Mm -hmm. Ruben, it's, it's also this idea that, uh, as Tucker put it, I think, just last night, um, there are situations like uh, the uh, opposition leader 
is in prison and that the you know media is under very strict constraints and the like could you just quickly speak to the truth as you see it on those counts the media the media are not under strict constraints and the opposition leader the reason the opposition leader has been has been uh, treated as he has been and the reason his, his television stations were had their licenses pulled is because he was openly going to Moscow he was openly sitting down with Putin and he was openly trying to undermine everything that the Ukrainian president was trying to do and, and one of his trips to Moscow he sat down with Putin and he said oh well you know you people in Ukraine you really don't want to be with the EU here's an eastern alternative we can unify with Russia which which nobody wants nobody wants that Ukraine will become another vassal state if that happens. We have to leave it at that, Reuben Johnson. Um, you and uh, the country that you inhabit and that uh, I know you love uh, are in our prayers, and I hope that uh, you will all be spared. What I believe Vladimir Putin does have in mind, whether it's this week or next week or at some point in the future, which is returning Ukraine to the kind of enslavement that it experienced for so long under the years of the Soviets and others. 